0: listening to Inclusive AF with Jackie Clayton and Katie Van Horn.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Katie Van Horn. And this is Jackie Clayton. Whoop, whoop,
2: whoop, whoop. And this is the uh, Inclusive AF podcast.
1: Um, if you have not listened before, now you know. <laughs> <laughs> if the website or the link that said Inclusive AF did not yeah if you're if, in the wrong room if you click on it <laughs> hopefully you know
2: um so jackie happy friday um as you can already tell i'm a little punch drunk because it's friday afternoon and so i am uh i think this is my last meeting of the day so and it's a long weekend labor day weekend so hey getting getting i know we're gonna there. have a pumpkin spice lattes in 100 degree mm-hmm. weather right well, I'm not because we have like a whole weird monsoon situation going on in Arizona. So um, it's like 87 degrees right now, Stop overcast, it. and it's been sprinkling all day. What is like, please, like, really, if we yes. could all just say a short prayer and but before again, we get started. But again, good reminder, the whole global warming thing is a hoax.
1: It's not real. <laughs> No proof of that at all. Nothing
2: to see here, folks. That's right. (laughs) Um, Anyhow. All right. So we are very excited today. We have uh, an amazing, amazing guest. And so uh, Roxy, I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce yourself, share a little bit about who you are and all that good stuff.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you both for having me. I'm really excited to see where this conversation goes. Y'all are already starting it off with some energy. So a little bit about me. Um, like part of the reason I'm here is because I just wrote two books um, how to have anti-racist conversations and the anti-racist heart. And it's like an amazing feat for me to imagine that I have these two books. But in my other life, I'm a psychologist. I am a clinical psychologist. So I work with um, folks in San Francisco who are disenfranchised, don't have housing. And I help them apply for social security so that they can actually get the services they need. And then I also um, work as a nonviolent communication trainer. And I'll talk much more about that later on. And then really important to me, I'm a mom. I have uh, now two living children. Um, My child is just went off to college, so I'm an empty nester. (laughs) And I'm also, I love just shouting out my parents. You know, I'm the parents of immigrants who came to the United States thinking, how will we get our kids to have good education? So, Lois and Milton Manning, thank you. (laughs)
1: Oh, uh, where did your parents come from?
0: Trinidad. I also came from Trinidad.
1: Oh, my dad. We're from um St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. Ah. It was always so funny growing up. They would say, Oh, your grandma has a Jamaican accent. And woo, she <laughs> would go off. To be clear, yes. this is not what that is.
0: <laughs> Everyone's like, if you're from the Caribbean, you must be Jamaican, right? That's right. <laughs>
1: That's right. I love congratulations on writing those books. I mean, it is a dream and to be able to write too, what was that like?
0: If I, if you had told me ahead of time, this is what it's going to involve, I would not have written these books, right? But it was amazing. Um, like I talk in the books about why it's even just a miracle that I did it. I had this like really traumatic experience when I was a uh, young college student that made me stop writing for a number of years. And so I never thought I would ever write a book. It's like, no, not me. And when, we started looking into, my co-author for the second book said to me, I wanna write a book with you. And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Which is what I said to everyone. And she kept insisting, like, you can do this, I know you can do it. And when we went to the publishers, they were like, no, we really want the joint book. Cause I didn't have a track record. Like, who are you? Why would we wanna publish your book, right? And we convinced them. They said, if you can show us that people want these books, we're gonna publish them. So we did a Kickstarter. We got like a whole bunch of people doing pre-orders for the book. And so they said, okay, we'll do two books. And it turned into the most intensive (laughs) thing I have ever done in my life. I've spent the last gazillion months just like writing, 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 revising. Every time I thought it was over, it'd be like, nope, there's a new stage, (laughs) more stuff to do. And I honestly did it because of my friends, like I had this really great support network and I wish everybody can like enlist the kind of support that I did, because that made such a difference.
2: That's amazing. Um, Well, so would love to hear more about it. Let's start with the the how to have anti-racist conversation. So uh, what was the impetus for that? What was and what what will someone learn by reading this book?
0: absolutely so you know i do a lot of work when i was in grad school i started being really interested in basically dei right i'm a black person i'm a black immigrant i'm a woman i've got a whole bunch of different characteristics that um check all of these diversity boxes right and people really struggle with how to have these conversations even people who are like i want to be anti-racist i want to show up i want to support They freeze whenever somebody tells them, hey, I didn't like what you did, right? They just freeze and collapse. Or they'll say things trying to make it better and it just makes it worse. So that's like on the white side. But even on the global majority side, people like me, we also don't know how to have these conversations. Because either I'm thinking, I'm a little bit scared because if I try to have this conversation with you, I'm gonna get smacked down. And then it's gonna be too costly to me or i've been smacked down and silent for so long that by the time i open my mouth it's coming out like i'm just like (laughs) fire hosing you right and then we're not having the conversations we want to have and so i wanted to help people figure out how can i be authentic and that's the most important part you're learning how can i be authentic real say everything i need to say but in a way that increases the chance that it's going to have the outcome that i want and that's what you learn in the book like how to approach having these conversations how to what you can actually say in having them, and then even some background on understanding a little bit about white supremacy, understanding the model that I use, um, that informs how I do these conversations.
1: I love that it's so important. It, it because just I was gonna say it's so great that you're a psychologist too, because I'm like, why when you say white supremacy, like it, you see an instant physical, <laughs> physiological response, mm-hmm. right? And it's like whoa like we we do need to talk about it you could expect yeah. at least 80 percent is going to have some kind of response mm-hmm. and you eat and you're like but i have to do those of us who do deib work are like no we have to call it out with yeah. that in advance and so is there anything else you think that like just just a word or phrase that is not triggering necessarily in a bad way, but think people are hesitant to bring up in the having these courageous conversations.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, even just telling somebody what you did was racist (laughs) becomes a challenge, right? People, the minute you say that people freeze and they're like, oh my God, you're calling me racist. You're saying I'm a bad person. And that's part of why it's so challenging to have these conversations because we don't recognize that this is what our human brains do. We all are like just kind of dumped into this world that has been racist, that was set up from like some really super racist foundations. And we can't help but learn some of these values, some of these beliefs. And if I can't acknowledge that even if I don't want to learn these things, I've started to learn them and they're gonna show up, then how am I ever gonna unlearn them? How am I ever gonna challenge them? And people are too afraid. We've made it so that if you say I did something that was racist or I had a racist impact, it means I'm a bad person. And I don't want it to mean that. I just want it to be that you were a human person who made a mistake and you can do better. And here's how you do better. And that's where the conversation needs to go.
2: I love that because I think, you know, that's something that, you know, I'm just thinking about like parents raising children. It's the, you know, you're not a bad kid because <laughs> you did this bad behavior. It's, Please don't do that bad behavior anymore this is how what my expectations are moving forward and so i think that is such a good like point of clarification that just because you do something that isn't ideal is racist comes across in a certain way can be you know uh triggering for folks or you know has an impact uh, you know just the words that we're using or the actions that we take knowing that that can have that impact but that doesn't mean Okay, shut it down. There's no mm-hmm. redeeming you, you know, you're, you're over now. And I think that's such a critical uh, distinction. So I, I appreciate you, you calling that out. So when folks are, are jumping into this book, who, who are the right folks to read it?
0: Honestly, everybody, <laughs> because like I said, we are all impacted by this role that we've been given. But that said, you know, there's some people that I think would especially love the book that I've been hearing from. I've been so deeply moved. I actually. Um... I don't even know if I should say this, I think I can. I just got a text from the person who's narrating the audiobook, who looked me up and it's a black woman. And she said, I have been so deeply moved reading this book. It was healing for me. And I never reach out to the authors of the books that I narrate. You're the first person I'm doing this to, but that's part of why I wrote this book. I wanted it to be healing for my community. I wanted it to, to, to be able to say the things if we don't talk about, talk about some of the experiences, I share some of my experiences. And to just say, yeah, this happened and it impacted me in this way and it was painful so that we can start to see ourselves reflected in the way that we talk about this work. So for sure, if you're a person from the global majority, read this book because I wanted it to give you a voice, right? I wanted it to help you see yourself and recognize why some of these conversations were hard and that we can still speak up and call people in and ask them to meet our needs better. So that's one group of people, right? Mm-hmm. And then I also wanted to speak to a lot of the white folks that I've met over the years. People who tell me like, I, I, do, I did a lot of retreats. Um, before the pandemic, I had a retreat that I did every year for about 17 years. And it was around how to have these conversations. And I would have white folks who would come and who would say, I'm here, like I'm voluntarily showing up for this retreat because I want to have these conversations. But the minute you said something, you said that didn't work. Like I said, they would collapse or they wouldn't know how to do it or they would be paralyzed with fear. If I say something, I'm going to make it worse, aren't I? So I better say nothing at all. And I wanted to help empower people to say, no, thats it's not about getting it right all the time. It's about staying engaged, staying in the dialogue, trying over and over and over again and so that's also for you if you're the kind of person who's saying i want to do something but i don't know how read the book
1: i i love that you're right i you made me think of like my husband so my husband's white and we have Mm -hmm. our kids i identify as black um and my husband said something one time and my mouth just fell open and my son he was like white people am i right Mm -hmm. and i was just like I have no idea what to say right now. It was just Mm -hmm. shocking to me. And it wasn't necessarily bad, but it's always a reminder of people that are trying to connect, maybe saying something that, you know, it's the stuff is not automatic, it's like Mm -hmm. I'm learning, I'm going through these stages or I'm trying to understand, let me use what I have today to try to start, you know, just like our Spanish, Mm -hmm. we can start speaking, we're trying we're not quite there Um, and but I do want to ask like this is real life and it's getting to the point where it's like you can be afraid to do something and then you're also afraid of not doing anything it is both of those things can be true I was I know I'm gonna say like the first step you know, as one of the first steps is getting a book like this. But what Mm -hmm. else can people do? Like, I always think about people, especially like in rural communities or Mm -hmm. small communities where they don't have a lot of diversity of of people or thought. Like if somebody is like sitting listening, um, how how do you get started in trying to Mm -hmm. learn the narrative?
0: well you, you actually said it already right first get the books yeah. <laughs> gotta, do, gotta do that shout out but then also one of the benefits of living in the times we live in now is that every single thing is online you can watch videos of me teaching i'm sure if you all teaching watch this podcast you know there's so many places where we can go to get the knowledge so I always tell people, in fact, that if your first way to get information is to go up to a global majority person and say, hey, I understood this, could you explain this to me? Don't do that. You know, Go do your research first, go to the internet first. Don't put all of the burden on us educating you when that information is out there. That's just another example of white supremacy culture in action. So if you are living in a place where you don't have access to this, take advantage of the richness in our world today and do a really deep dive on the internet. Um, The other thing I love to tell people is you gotta practice. You know, we can have all of the learning, all of the consuming information, but you never know how it's gonna land in you until you open your mouth and you try to say something. And even though it feels really awkward, You know, grab some of your friends together and think about a time when you've had impact, a time when you've said something and you realize it didn't work for the person and say, could you role play with me how I could either make a repair? Could you role play with me what I can say to acknowledge that I did harm? So just practice with your friends so that you start to rewire those pathways in your brain and you have it available for you when it happens again.
1: Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We, we out.
2: I love that. I, you know, I so I, I'm actually just thinking like the this book would be so good also, I assume for groups that, Mm -hmm. you know, teams that are working together and, you know, especially probably the handbook as well, that, that is that companion handbook. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think this is the work that, you know, Jackie and I both do uh, DEI work. I am a consultant and I can't tell you the number of executives that have said to me, I just don't know what to say. So I feel like it's, I should just not say anything because I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I mean, we've seen that in so many organizations across the board with, you know, the the continuous and ongoing and daily uh, racist activities going on across the country um, and across the world. And so it is, you know, whatever we can do to work with our leaders as well, just Mm -hmm. to equip them with the right tools, to your point hey, do some role playing now. So when you're mm-hmm. in that moment, you know what are the things that you should say or how you should approach it. I love that, That mm-hmm. that is awesome.
0: Can I add something? Cause you know, you both said this piece around like, I don't know what to say and, and therefore I'm not gonna say anything. And one of the things I always stress when I work people is when you go quiet in those moments you are taking care of yourself, right? You're saying my worry about looking silly or foolish or doing more harm is more important than letting that person who's impacted know that I've got their back, that I'm supporting them. And I would much rather you took on that risk, the vulnerability of maybe getting it wrong and show up and let me know that you're there for me. So take that risk, just show up and trust that if you get it wrong, well, there's another conversation you can have. You can repair that. But the most important message is by opening your mouth, you've let me know that I'm not alone.
1: I love that. Like I've never thought about that in those moments where somebody could have said, I want you to know that I, I really wanna support you while you're not knowing what to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you could just say that, it would be yeah. so much like I know the words I chose were maybe they weren't perfect, but I really, really am trying mm-hmm. of doing that. And I also don't think that people recognize like when you earlier, when you were talking about um, that's like white supremacy in action. Like I, I, you also see people centering themselves in the conversation. It's another version of white supremacy in action. And it's so it's like you know, you are not the most important person in the room right now, Mm -hmm. like friendly reminder. I don't know if you can say that in a friendly way, but it's like, it's really not about you right now.
0: Um, Can I add something to that too? Because when you said, I don't know if I can say this in a friendly way, I always remind people that if I say this to you, That is me being a friend. Because when I am not your friend, when I don't care about you, when I don't trust you, I just walk away. I'm like, okay, you're gonna do this thing, I'm gone. I'm not gonna stay and put up with this. So the fact that I'm saying this to you means I'm actually thinking there's a chance that this relationship can be repaired, that it can go in a way that's supportive to me and to you.
1: I just want Roxy with me all the time, always. Mm. (laughs) I feel so much better about the work that we do. Dr Manning, do you make house calls? No. Right. Uh, I think somebody's <laughs> going to think I'm given that theory, someone today found out that I'm their best friend. <laughs> that is not how I was feeling about it earlier. But now I feel, yeah, I am yeah. their best friend. But mm-hmm. it, like it's
2: such a, a great example of, you know, all of the things that in HR we talk about around giving feedback. You're not giving feedback to someone to be a jerk, you're giving feedback to them because you want them to get better and improve. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's the same concept. And I, and I think in an even more important and critical topic, this isn't just, Hey, I need you to improve your performance and, you know, make more widgets. Mm-hmm. It's, Hey, I need you to improve as a human being and, and show up in a different way, which. I I would hope that every single person wants that and wants to have those those folks that do look out for them to say hey that wasn't great and here's why.
0: Absolutely and this is part of what the approach in my books are about because I think so many people have had that feedback as punishment right or feedback as calling you out saying you're bad you should go away and I'm hopefully advocating for a different approach I believe that you know you use that family analogy earlier like I think about doing this work as creating a bigger family making sure that if my family member says something I don't like I'm going to let you know but I'm going to let you know with love because ultimately I want to create a family where we're all thriving and that's the approach that I think is so missing at times from this work and that would really help to transform it so people don't go to that freeze fear place when somebody's telling them that didn't work for me because they realize like, oh, you're just calling me in. Like you call in your your sister or your mom or someone else.
1: It's practice, like you said, like, it is our natural instinct to go to that that's like very core primal space of mm-hmm. having that reaction and and not knowing what to do and you really have to slow down you're actually evolved by sh- like having a conversation mm-hmm. shows that you have evolved as a human this is not which means there's a chance there's, yes. a, there's a chance that we can get through this and i also feel like so many people have forgotten that both things can be true like i can really want to support you but not know how or be afraid in what you've asked me to do in order to do that but still want to do it Afraid, I'll keep moving forward, um, or knowing when 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 to step in, where you can have these both beliefs, and that's something right now that is constantly having to remind people that you could you could hate your governor, but Mm -hmm. still be glad they reduced your taxes. That's (laughs) okay, right? We can all agree, like there's Mm -hmm. different pieces. Are um, you thinking in a specific governor? I don't right know. <laughs> I live in a place that rhymes with excess. <laughs> um, but I want to get to the San Francisco part because there are challenges in San Francisco right now. Like we know that um, with like I mean, this is like completely the way my brain works. Like they were looking at the different stores that were closing down, looking into the downtown area and how those things are are going and and houseless people looking for different things. And I know that you said that you work a lot in the San Francisco area. So I was wondering if we can kind of pivot in that direction about Mm -hmm. what kind of work do you do specifically there in San Francisco Mm -hmm. or in the Bay Area?
0: Sure. So one of the things that I actually love about the city of San Francisco is just how much support it gives the citizens. And I know that some folks in some kind, some parts of the country think that's the reason we have the problems we have. But essentially, if you're in San Francisco and you're receiving um, general assistance money, so like welfare money like that, the city also recognizes that you're probably not receiving this money because you're a deadbeat you don't want to work right that there's something going on so every single person who receives this money gets screened to find out if they have a physical disability or a mental disability. And if the screeners say like this person might they get sent to my department and then we have a whole team of. Um, caseworkers who will do a little bit more of an in depth interview and if they believe there's either history or, or like more evidence they get sent to meet with one of the psychologists or one of the medical doctors and I think we have. We had something like 11 psychologists and maybe six medical doctors who just work full time. And we meet with people, we evaluate them to see if they would qualify for social security. Um, Our team can also help people get into housing if they're really stuck. Um, Sometimes with social security, you know, social security will say, oh, you're unhoused, right? You don't have a house. But we're gonna send you an email or we're gonna send you a message that tells you you have an appointment with this doctor. where am I getting this message from, right? And so that I miss this appointment, I don't show up, and they say, oh, well, sorry, you missed your appointment, you don't qualify for social security. So my team will make sure that we receive all of those emails, we will go pick you up and take you to the doctor and make sure you get to the appointment. And it's been some of the most rewarding work I've done, because some of the folks that I've served, I've served folks who are veterans, folks who have severe mental illness, people who have tried their Best who have turned to substances because of severe trauma and who don't have the capacity to navigate the systems that are set up supposedly to help them get help. And our department makes sure that they get help, that they get, if they qualify for Social Security, they then have medical benefits, they have enough money to move into housing. It's just so amazing the work that I do. I love my job.
1: <laughs> I love that you love your job. Yeah. I
2: <laughs> yeah. can definitely hear that. I love that um so you know obviously this the unhoused population is growing and growing in California and and we know that and you know to your point I think that is kind of the the storyline that a lot of folks in the U.S. are are getting is oh it's because they offer all of these services what is your response to that
0: yeah so I think I'm sure that that's a tiny little bit of the reasons why, but I know when I talk to folks that I work with, they don't tell me I come to California because I want to get services, right? And, you know, people will be explicit and be real with me, so I know when people have told me that. But often what people are telling me is I came to California because the climate around being an LGBTQ person in my community was horrible. I was tortured, right? So I'm escaping to where I can find safety. People are telling me things like, there are no services, there are no support services where I live and it's freezing and I'm gonna die if I'm living on the street. So I'm trying to go to a place where at least if I'm gonna live outside, I'm not gonna die from cold, right? I'm not gonna die from heat. So it's not so much that It's only because we're providing services, but we also provide an environment where we tell people you matter. You're a human being, you deserve to have some basic needs met. You're a human being who deserves to live the lifestyle that you wanna live. That it's okay to be, not just okay, but of course, if you're LGBTQ+, you're welcome here. If you're trans, you're welcome here. If you're undocumented, you're welcome here, right? So it's it's around, can I go to a place where I belong? And that's why folks are here. And then just like everywhere in the country, it's expensive. And so we don't have a great system to distribute resources because I think the housing stock is there. It's just that it's too expensive. It's priced out of people's reach. And so that's one of the places where I think San Francisco, like every other part of the country can do a little bit better job, making sure that we give the abundance that this country has to everyone.
1: Well, and understanding how, like you're talking, navigating through that process Right, I mean, yeah, we we Katie and I are are homeowners, but then you're like, wait, you want me to sign what? Like, what I have to buy what? Yeah, no, like, that's not, why is I said I would put this amount down. Why is it it what?
2: Yeah. Like,
1: there's so many things that are are confusing, so that even if you're prepared, do you have the ability to take the time to go through all of the extra stages? Because it's right. not like walking and buying a shirt or any of those things and also making sure that like you are, you have enough that you have enough, but then that you also can look at the other resources that are afforded to you. Some people are afraid that, Oh, now that I have this house, what is, what does that mean? Or I have Mm -hmm. this place to live. If you know, they gave me a place to live. There's no public transportation, but they gave me this house. Um, or, They've opened this medical clinic, but it's only open from these hours, and I have to work. There's so many, there's so many. Even things
0: like you've given me this house, you've given me this medical clinic, but in order to access it, I have to like check my dignity at the door, right? That's right. It's like, I go in and people treat me like less than because I'm receiving some sort of support from the government. So it's there's so many nuances into why people, like I've had people say, I'm not going to a shelter because I want to have the freedom and the sense of like, Agency that I experience on the street that I don't have in the shelter. I'm not looked down on when I'm in the street because wow. everyone else that I meet on the street sees me as human. But when I'm in the shelter, people start talking down to me. They start seeing me as less than.
2: We have a, a, a friend of ours who actually has been on the the podcast before, Allison uh, Rapling, and she uh, leads a group called uh, Arrowet, and they help women who have been incarcerated and it's it's a very similar story of you know they need the services they don't know what to do to get those services and when you go into some of these settings agencies etc it is that feeling of less than or yeah how can you not get it it's so simple and it's like nothing with the government is simple you know the the 42 document 42 page documents you have to fill out all of these things and so it's so good to hear of organizations and people that are doing this work just to help. Like, I wouldn't know how to navigate how to apply for Social Security or how mm-hmm. to apply for unemployment or, you know, some of these things. And I mean, could I Google it and figure out? Probably. But there's also that having someone, you know, that doesn't have a computer, doesn't have an email, doesn't I- have a, a an address who is that person that's going to help them and go here's how you do it and here's how we can get you through this system and get you what you need so i and love
0: even that. as you say like you know you would be able to figure it out but that's because you're an able-bodied person right right so if i'm also dealing with chronic pain or mental illness on top of trying to figure out this big system then it's really loaded stacked against me
1: Absolutely. Or this, the, the you know there are this is what's so frustrating about it's part of what is frustrating, especially when you're talking about areas of, of like white supremacy, and you have these things that are passed down and you adopt the shame mm-hmm. from somewhere like this isn't supposed to happen mm-hmm. to me. This is supposed to happen to somebody else. Well, it did happen to me, but I- how 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 do I navigate through through this space or um, you know, when, when you're in that predicament of trying to mask and hide all all of these things so that people don't know because of what we're saying, you may have all of these different assets, but you might have to go and ask for help, you know, and there's also we have different generations, different time periods of people that came from a lot and got to a place of nothing and didn't know that that's happening or different generational things that have not been passed on these are aren't necessarily lessons that have been passed on. And so you can feel all alone um, yeah. within the the way that the system is 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 navigated.
0: And can I build on that because when I think about people losing things or people realizing I'm kind of at the bottom of the social hierarchy. And the amount of shame that people feel, because one of the messages, and it's a message that's also white supremacy in action, right, is that if you don't have something, if you're not succeeding, it's because you are bad. And it's not about the system is set up so that you don't succeed, right? And so people are often ignoring the impact of the system and how it shapes our lives and how it constrains us. And it's so important that we are able to see that this is not just me. This is not only me. I am not here because I wasn't good enough. I'm here because I'm part of this really messed up system out there.
1: Well, I'm glad you said that. I've I been, we had a guest last week. Um, and so it started me thinking about systems thinking and you know diversity work about how we all so often teach it and we split it all apart instead of looking at the full system. And so I'm trying to look at new innovative solutions of attacking the EIB from a systemic piece because you're breaking it apart so far that people don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, I, I've talked a couple of podcasts ago when I was like, did y'all know when they're saying environmental sy- systems, they are talking about like me being black in Texas is that the environment. <laughs> no one told me that. I'm 50. Oh. I thought it was like, I don't know, the ozone layer. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know why this is happening. And it's like, why don't people just say that, right? Because yeah. so many people we've done such a great job of trying to water down. So we don't have to say things like racism and white supremacy or black people. Mm-hmm. And It always strikes me as odd. Like if you say white people, all the white people, full panic. You don't even have to say you're like, oh, it's that white guy right there full panic in the whole grocery store, all everybody's falling out. And it's like, but wait, if you said that I'm a black person, I would not have that way. And and learning that we've learned, we may have learned and come to this place where we are today differently. Mm -hmm. And we have to have those conversations or else I wouldn't know. I'm not exposed if we don't have.
0: Have you ever found yourself scrolling through financial news and wondering, how does any of this affect me? How can I read a major headline and truly understand what impact that has on not only my portfolio, to engage in conversation with much more educated opinions and predictions so be sure to check out our show inside the street wherever you find your podcast yeah i'm just like struck by this example you gave of, of like naming white people versus black people right right and it so points out this idea that. You know, if I'm white, I don't have to talk about being white. It's just a norm. And so I'm not used to like that being named because I name other people because they're the ones who are different. But I'm just me. I'm just a person. There's no white. It's just person.
1: This woman came to me once and she goes, oh, well, you know, she called you that black girl. I go, oh, she did. And she goes, yeah. I go, what do you call me? I'm just waiting. I was like the loud one. Like what, like the one with the glasses? But if you Mm -hmm. don't use black, so then what are the adjectives? And that was a full panic too. Like, Mm oh, I don't know what to say. And it's like, we have to normalize some of these things and get people exposed.
0: You know, one of the things that's been terrifying for me, I'm going to go to France in November to do a whole retreat on like essentially how to talk about privilege. And one of the things that I was told by my French colleagues is that as a result of World War II, they passed a law that said, you know, we don't look at race, we don't talk about race. And I see that happening. Like there's this kind of movement to that here. We shouldn't talk about race. And it is so problematic because if I can't say black person, I also can't assess are black people being impacted by the systems that we've created. And so it's a way that obscures the reality of what goes on to the benefit of the folks with power, not to the benefit of the people who are being impacted. I want you to call me black because then I can say that thing you said about me because I'm black is a problem. If I can't say that I'm black, I can't talk about it.
1: My oldest just they they were in France, but they just got back from Berlin and they were like, you know, she they they had never experienced that level of racism, blatant racism than they did in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And I was like, black people don't even exist in Berlin. Like, how could anybody? <laughs> and we just started laughing about it because, you know, when you do D-E-I-B work, you know, when you go through France and Germany, there's other countries that don't even acknowledge. So it's like you're not even you don't even right. exist in those things. And um, it's just it's a shame. Like we were going over whether the phrases and different things. And so they connected with other black people. But of course, because they were in they were in berlin there were black people from italy and black people from you know all over the place that were together and so it was it was very popular we would all always find each other in every different like, in every different club party or whatever it didn't matter that all of these people came from all of these different countries um and then also assessing like i know that happened in the united states that right? i will make eye contact and connection yeah. but i didn't know it was going to be like that in Germany, where other people are looking for each other, even though yeah. we still felt that closeness, even though we didn't speak the same language. We came from different countries. We eat, ate different food. We dressed differently, but still but we were all impacted
0: by color. white supremacy.
1: That's right. right? Yeah. Well, yeah.
2: It, it, I was going to say, you also have the layer of immigration in Europe is a very different conversation. And so, you know, someone that has different color skin is assumed to be an immigrant. And therefore, Mm -hmm. a lower than you know, less than you know, that is just the mentality, unfortunately. And that's, again, just more of this work and anyone who is not in the in group, it it does get treated completely differently, or as if they don't even exist. And I mean, we don't need to pick on Germany, we can say that about a lot of different, you know, European Mm -hmm. countries. Not that we have any, any stones to throw over here in the U.S.,
1: to be clear. Because we're so great. Oh, wait. Yeah, we've got this all nailed down over (laughs) here. All nailed down. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just feel like, you know, like you're saying, like, I remember when I started traveling internationally and finding other Black people and like, tell me your story of how has this impacted your life? because I know how it's impacted mine, but you know, you go to these countries and you enjoy the food and the art and the culture. But it's like, tell me your story, because I'm always like, how did you get here? What is the story that brought you here? What's the narrative that you know, that brought you to places like, you know, um, because of my background, it's always through the Caribbean. So mm-hmm. it's like Curacao or, or, you know, Panama or like Cuba, like all of that area. I used to live in South Florida. And mm-hmm. you would meet all of these people and it's like what what is your experience again? Because we look at it broken apart as if it's different
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the United States than it is other places. No, it's still steeped in white supremacy with mm-hmm. a different accent. Mm-hmm. That's all that's all it is.
0: Yeah. I just got back from Brazil and One of the things that was so deeply moving there, I spoke to a number of Black activists and they were talking about the legacy of what that white supremacy looked like in Brazil, right? So Brazil ended slavery, but then they were like, but we're gonna say that Blacks don't exist. We're gonna say that we're all just one race (laughs) and and we're gonna take this concerted effort to whiten this one race that we are. And so there's this kind of both spoken and unspoken and confused understanding about who's black, who's not black. Like one of the people that I spoke with told me this horrendous story about applying for a scholarship for black folks. And you have to send in a picture. And the scholarship committee wrote her back and said, you're not black enough. But then when she goes to other places, they tell her she's too black. That's right? right. And so it's just kind of like, if we can't talk about this, if we can't acknowledge what has happened, we get all of these multiple layers of impact where people are now saying, I don't even know what I am or what I'm allowed to say has impacted me. I don't know where I stand on this issue anymore.
1: I, 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 you know, the other day I was breaking it down and it's funny when you have people like you're talking about that are really interested and you're having these deep conversations and I have made it a point, um, it's a rule for me that I'm not going to revisit my personal trauma for someone else's aha moment. And so I've come up with various stories in order to connect when people are trying to do these searches and I can still protect myself. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was telling someone, I was like, well, we were talking about Brazil in particular, um, and Portugal. And I was like, well, you know, as they had these explorers from all these different places, they didn't have a color outside of black. And I was like, but when I talked to them about the color brown, I was like, do you know anything about the color brown? And they're like, no, I was like, you can't make it with light. I was like, by the way, if you were white and you color yourself, what is that color? Oh, peach. I was like, would you call it light orange? I was like, do you know what brown is? Dark orange. And they're like, oh, my God. I was like, yeah. Now what? It's just the spectrum, you know, mm. it's like a darker mm-hmm. orange and lighter orange and then it's like wait now all of this is starting to come together on how did we get here because some things i think we try to make more complex than they are need to be mm-hmm. you know how we got there it's not great like but don't let that the complexity scare you mm-hmm. because some things just aren't that serious once you start having the conversation
0: yeah i think the bottom line for me is that we have to be able to have these conversations right we have to be able to name like this is what's happening this is how i've been impacted these are the systems that are impacting me and to feel fearless about inviting other people to explore this with us
1: i think i want you to talk more about courageous conversations because i was having a narrative with a friend when i was saying to white people, the courageous conversation is different than what it is to the black person. Like, you might think it's courageous to ask about something about my whole being, and I could think it's courageous just asking if you want to go to lunch might be a scary place for me.
0: Oh, and you know, y'all do. DIB work in the workplace. And that is such a big awareness that people need to have, right? That when we talk about like workplace safety, that means such different things for different people. And I love this piece that recognizing that the harm that we experience as global majority folks over and over and over again when we try to step up and say hey would you like to go to lunch can i be included in this can i join this committee etc and it's shut down or we're in some ways punished because of that it's a different level of risk that we're taking all the time. And when you ask, you think it's being courageous to talk to me about race, what you're actually doing is saying to me, I want you to take the risk of talking about something without knowing where I stand on this or how I'm gonna respond or when it's gonna be too much for me. And so the courage is actually not on your end, it's on my end to take you up on that offer in addition to all the other places where I need to like step up and risk and not know about my safety before I I try something.
1: I mean, that's how we got here, which is funny, was like I always say, now we're at like hundred and thirty-five episodes. I don't know, something ridiculous of how many times we've done the <laughs> podcast. Um, but there was a year of conversations that we didn't record before mm-hmm. we started recording them with me and Katie. And I was like, and and the conversation went like I have to ask you a question. She's like, Okay. And I said, I literally said, Why do white people? And she goes, Wait. Do you want me to speak on behalf of all white people? And I said yes, <laughs> all of them. And she said, "Okay." And are not <laughs> we, good at that, but sure, let's said, do it. You're like, mm-hmm. "All okay, right, I okay, I'll take a stab at it." Mm. I, so I want
2: to I want to switch oh. gears slightly because I want to mm-hmm. ask you a question. You've used the term mm-hmm. uh, the you know global majority. So mm-hmm. I, I want to talk uh, you know about the people of the global majority. And the, the myth, obviously the myth being that, you know, white is the global majority, but I would love for you to just touch a little bit on mm-hmm. the real global majority.
0: Yeah, I love it, love it, love it that you named that. And it's exactly what you said. Um first I'd like to shout out the term came from Rosemary Kemble Stevens, amazing thinker in the UK, and she was using it as part of decolonizing language. And so part of it was to intentionally push back against this idea that if I say white folks are the majority and everyone else is the minority, that needs to be true, right? But in fact, people of the global majority worldwide are 85% of the world population. And so calling us the minority is just furthering this narrative that we're somehow less than, not as important, not as numerous as we are. And so I just love using that that phrase partly to do that and also because it helps to um, it's more inclusive, like you mentioned, when you go to other countries, that people have different language. And this language, like people are not saying, Am I brown enough? Or am I a person of color? Or am I not? It's like, No, you're a member of the global majority. And it's just these identities, these identities count.
2: I, and I, I think that's such a, a critical reminder to folks, especially folks doing this work. And I, you know, obviously, we work with a lot of HR people and, you know, even, you know, the census, the U.S. census at, you know, how people are labeled, how people are able to share their mm-hmm. their racial background. And I mean, I think we, we just added, you know, two or more races to a lot of the HR systems, you know, some of these different things. And to your point, you know, am I black enough? Am I white enough? Mm-hmm. Well, how are you identifying today or, you know, at work or whatever it might be? And, you know, I think we've all met you know folks that you you know visually they might not look whatever race they are um and so it is just an interesting concept and i I love that you're using this language because i think it's so important for folks to remember and and remember it for multiple reasons one is the power of that global majority Mm -hmm. and what what can be done um if we really do harness that power and and use it in the right way so um i i want to skip to the 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 handbook mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you know you talked a little bit about your book and you know that everyone should read it I, on the the anti-racist heart the self-compassion activism handbook is that a group activity that you would recommend or you know that a group should read it together or what what do you recommend folks do
0: It's both, it can be both an individual activity or a group activity. So I wrote that book with my amazing co-author Sarah Payton. And so it brings in like a lot of her brilliance around the neuroscience and understanding how our brains work. And part of the intention of that book was exactly what we've been talking about. That, you know, my book gives you a lot of understanding about the concepts, how to have the conversations, and you will still open your mouth and go, I don't know what to say at this moment, right? We still freeze. And so the handbook was meant to help people look at those places. Like where are the places where you're having the blocks? Where are the places where you might have almost like these unspoken contracts with yourself not to intervene, not to show up, not to speak in these ways. And then also lots of practice in applying the concepts in the book. So it's a workbook. You can like, there are tons and tons and tons of journal activities and exercises. You can do them in a group. We're teaching a class right now. so we're helping people learn how to work with this in a group setting, or you can do it individually in journaling. I know some folks have started a book group where they're already looking at some of this. So either one works.
2: Awesome. Yeah. I, so uh, Jackie knows this because I, I took her team through the racial healing handbook, mm. uh, which is a, a, you know another, I, I think just a great starting point for a lot of folks that are coming to this conversation and you know also mm. kind of regardless of where they are on their journey, it helps but I love the handbooks where they can do some journaling on their own, but then have some great discussions about it as well. So I I love those group activities, so uh, amazing. Um, So uh, Dr. Manning, we could talk to you, I think, for another like six or seven hours, but um, alas, uh, it's Friday afternoon. So we really-
0: (laughs) On a holiday weekend.
2: (laughs) On a holiday weekend. So I would love for you to share with our listeners, what are, you know, one or two things that you want to make sure that they heard in this episode and that they take with them from this episode?
0: So absolutely. Major, major, major takeaway is take the risk. Take the risk and show up, open your mouth and speak, right? So that's the first piece I want folks to hear. And the second piece is you are not a bad person, but you can do better right? So you just have to keep trying. This is a lifelong engagement, not a, I'm going to open the book, get the knowledge and then I'm going to be fixed. So just keep trying.
1: I love that. I think if I had to pick something to say, it's kind of in the tone right now. It's like, yeah, that happened. That's what I want to say. People need to realize, yeah, yeah, that happened. So let's keep, let's keep going you know let's acknowledge what these things are and we can do something with it like you can't change what you don't acknowledge and so many people try to not you you just will not get there and it just that pit in your stomach just keeps growing and growing and growing you have to acknowledge it and um show yourself a little bit of grace
0: absolutely i love that that would be another key takeaway you know if you don't acknowledge nothing changes
1: Yeah,
2: mine is very similar to Jackie's and like, it's the listening. So listening and believing, you know, and and Jackie's heard me that that is a refrain I use quite often. It is the, are you listening to the story? But also, are you believing the story? And are you Mm -hmm. acknowledging the story for what it is? And, you know, the trauma that might have occurred because of that. And, And also, again, especially in the workplace, it is a continuous ongoing trauma that is happening to folks that are in marginalized communities in you know these different uh racial groups that it is a it's never stopping it just it it's constant the minute you try to move past something something else occurs so um I have already as we've been talking ordered both of your books uh oh, thank on, you so i <laughs> uh, very excited to dig in on those uh, Dr Manning thank you so much for joining us um I truly truly appreciate you taking the time um this is Katie
1: Van Horn and this is Jackie Clayton uh, thank you both for having me <laughs> of course
0: you're listening to inclusive AF with Jackie Clayton and Katie Van Horn. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet
2: Toss podcast.
1: Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans.
0: You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your
2: podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com.
1: By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.